the book of Hosea last week, book of Amos uh, this week. Uh, <clears throat> it was uh, oh, a long time ago, about 15 years ago now, we were living in Illinois. And uh, I had a, a conference down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I was driving by myself down uh, Interstate 55 and um, hadn't quite hit uh, Louisiana yet. When I was going down uh, interstate, about 70 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, two, these two cars in front of me, the car in the right lane didn't want to be in the right lane for, you know, anymore for some reason, decided they wanted to be in the left lane, but there was a car in the left lane that um, was just minding his own business, and anyways, it was almost like slow motion. If you've ever seen an, or witnessed an accident, they just kind of happen in slow motion. I don't know why this is just playing back over here in your mind. But the car in the right lane moved over to the left and discovered too late that another car was there and nudged the back end of the car in the left lane, causing that car to swerve, causing the car in the right lane to swerve. Uh, long story short, the car in the left lane ended up in the median, no problem, managed to get the brakes on and, and roll to a stop. The one in the right lane wasn't as fortunate, kind of fishtailed down the interstate a little bit, ran off into the... Uh, in the median on the right, and uh, did a few tumbles, landed on, and ended, and came to rest on its side. Uh, wheels up in the air, and uh, you know, smoke everywhere. And so I pulled over to the side, as did a number of other cars, and raced out to. We could see the one in the middle of the the freeway was okay. Uh, got over to the other car and just blessed the fact that this, the person in the car was okay, but. She couldn't get out of the car because the car's on the side. The, the door that wasn't against the ground was way up in the air. And so a number of us, we uh, kind of clicked into rescue mode and we became rescuers. Uh, a couple of us climbed on top of the car. A couple held the car, making sure it wasn't going to topple over on, on anyone. And we got this lady out of this car. I didn't start that day. She was fine and... Uh, um, didn't need to go to the hospital, just got looked over, and, and praise the Lord, there wasn't any uh, serious injuries. But I didn't wake up that day uh, as a rescuer. I didn't wake up that day um, uh, deciding, hey, today I'm going to rescue someone. Um, I don't come from a long line of rescuers. My dad wasn't a, a rescuer. My dad, we don't have uh, firefighters, paramedics, and that. My wife's a, a nurse. She was trained as a nurse. But I, for me, I didn't grow up with that. I didn't live around that. So that day, it was like, okay, I guess I'm a rescuer today. Well, this is kind of the story of Amos. Amos was not a prophet. And you're saying, well, pastor, it's, uh, he wrote a book. It's in the Bible. He's called a prophet. He's, uh, he's a prophet. Well, he is a prophet, but he didn't wake up. He didn't come from a long line of prophets. He was just minding his own business. And one day God spoke to him and said, hey, I would need you to speak on my behalf, or I want you to speak on my behalf. So look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1. It says, this message was given to Amos a shepherd, there it is. He wasn't a prophet, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd of Tekoa. <clears throat> he received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, were king, uh, sorry, was king of Israel. So he was a shepherd. He's out in public, just kind of minding his own business, and then the Lord taps him on the shoulder and says, I have a message for you. We we're told he lived in Tekoa. And you're like, okay, well, what's, what's significant about Tekoa? Well, Tekoa is this area. It was a desert area to the southeast of Jerusalem. 
kind of toward the Dead Sea. It was up in the mountains, um, uh, about 3,000 feet elevation. And from there, the, the topography dropped off uh, about 4,000 feet down to the Dead Sea. There's a picture here that shows this area, and it's not a nice area. If you ever were, were going to pick a place to be a shepherd, this would not be the place. You know, give me, uh, you know, Palm Desert or, you know, give me, you know, Michigan or something like that. But not here. Not in Tekoa. But this is where Amos uh, made his living as a shepherd. God taps him on the shoulder and says, I have something I want you to say. Well, one person said this about this region of Tekoa, and it was this. It said, it's like living next door to doom. There's a sense of how narrow the border is between life and death. The desert, is, the desert is always in your face, and it's howling beasts and dry blowing sand is a foreboding of doom. So this is, this is where Amos lives, and he's called to speak. The interesting thing about it is, uh, if you recall from last week, uh, Amos is a, is a contemporary of Hosea. We know kind of the time, the time period, and this is during the divided kingdom. Give you a little bit of a refresher. After the time of, uh, of Solomon, Solomon's two sons uh, really divided the, the nation of Israel. And you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. This is the, the age of the era of the divided kingdoms. Well, Amos is in the southern kingdom, obviously down by the Dead Sea. And he's called to speak to the northern kingdom. He's called to give this message from God to Israel in the north. And this is what he says. Take a look at verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, For three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges, having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Haziel that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon, and the one who holds the scepter of Beth-Adin, the people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr. And you're going, okay, what does that mean? Um, there's a lot of names, a lot of places. Uh, this is the message that he gave. What does this mean? Now remember, this is a time of great prosperity, a time when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were wealthy, they were rich, a lot of the great things going for them. They thought as a result, that this was God's approval over them. God's face was smiling, and they were, they were kind of the, the jewel in God's crown. But what had been happening, they'd been mixing their worship of the one true God with all of these other practices, these pagan practices. Last week we talked about some of their farming and agricultural practices and how they incorporated this worship of, of these pagan idols and these pagan gods. So truthfully, God wasn't pleased with him, and this message comes, but the first place is Damascus, and you're kind of going, well, this doesn't sound like Israel. It kind of does, but kind of doesn't. Well, there's a pattern that, that in this message that Amos uh, reiterates over and over. For Damascus, he says, for three sins, even four. This is the judgment that's coming. And as you go through chapters one and two, you'll see these names come up. He says, there's judgment coming on Damascus. There's judgment coming on Gaza, on Tyre, on Edom, on Ammon, on Moab, and on Judah. And, and he's just going through these names and, and describing their sins and describing the judgment that will come on them. And you say, well, okay, once again, what's up with this? 
Well, it's interesting to think that in the northern kingdom of Israel, as this message is coming to them, it, it, when you start to discover what these, these places are and these people groups are, you get the gist of, of why Israel would be kind of perking up their ears and going, really? And actually would be kind of happy to hear these judgments come. The first three, those are Israel's political enemies. Those are people, uh, people groups who Israel hated. They detested these people. So when they hear Amos saying, well, for the sins of Damascus, three or even four, I'm going to pour out my wrath on them. They're going, really? Yes, awesome. And Gaza, you mean you're going to get Gaza too? And, and Tyre, oh man, this is a great day. This is a great message. Then we get on to Edom and Ammon and Moab. Well, these are closer relatives to Israel, but you notice it's not Israel. And so... As, as reluctant as they are, they're still game. It's like your little brother getting in trouble. So you're like, okay, yeah, go at him. As long as it's not me, right? So he hear, they, Israel hears these names and they're going, really? Well, you know, I'm, it's sad, at least not, not for the first three, but at least for the, first, the second four, these relatives of ours. Yeah, it's sad, but praise the Lord, it's not us. Um, go get them. Go get them, Amos. Go get them, God. You know, just... Hit him hard. This judgment is coming. Well, then Amos continues on. And take a look at chapter 2, verse 6. He gets going on. He says, this is what the Lord says. So he's just gone through these seven people groups. And then he says, the people of Israel have sinned again and again. So for three sins, even four, some versions say. And I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people. So there's this indictment on them. They sell helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At the religious festivals, they lounge in clothing. Their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. And Israel is standing there speechless. Go get him, God. Go get him. Yeah, hit him again. And then, uh-oh, we're in this as well. It's like when the principal at the school is calling down all these people to the office, and you're like, yeah, my name's not there, and then they call your name. Uh-oh. Something's going on. Something's happening here. Read on, verse 13. So the Lord says, I will make you groan. Here's the, here's the consequences. Here's the judgment, the wrath of God. I'll make you groan like a wagon loaded down with sheaves of grain. Your fastest runners will not get away. No one's going to be able to get away from this. The strongest among you will become weak. Even mighty warriors will be unable to save themselves. The archers will not stand their ground. The swiftest runners won't be fast enough to escape. Even those riding horses won't be able to save themselves. On that day, the most courageous of your fighting men will drop their weapons and run for their lives, says the Lord. This isn't a matter of how good you are at doing what you're doing or how wealthy you are or how, how pristine you are before God. No, this is a judgment coming down on all of you, Israel. You're just like all the rest, and there's judgment in store for you too. You see, they saw the sins of the others and they, they considered those to be serious. They, they saw what other nations were doing and other people groups were doing. They're they like, go get them, God. And yet, they were failing to look inwardly at themselves. 
based on their success and based on their prosperity, what could possibly be wrong with them? How could God be upset with them when all this prosperity was coming their way? You know, I said a couple of weeks ago, not all blessings that we experience are a result of us doing good. Likewise, not all difficulties and sorrow we experience are a result of us doing bad. Understand that those aren't always the case. So we can't look at our lives and depending on how prosperous we are or how, how uh, uh, persecuted we are, draw a direct correlation to how good or how bad we are in God's sight. And yet we tend to do that, don't we? We must be putting a smile on God's face because we're receiving these blessings. But what I talked about a couple of weeks ago as well as last week, it's up to us to have a spirit of discernment and a spirit of introspection and understand what God is saying to us. You see here, Amos' word from the Lord is, Israel, you need to look at yourself. You need to examine your heart. You need to look inwardly. And understand truly what's going on. You see, church, we're really good at pointing the finger at other people. Understanding what other people's flaws are. And yet, if we are never willing to look inwardly and look at ourselves, we're missing the opportunity that the Holy Spirit wants to have in speaking into our lives. We have got to be better at looking inwardly and introspectively and asking the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts honestly. Honestly, now I get it. I've said this many times over the last few weeks. You know, you preach a sermon like this and the people who don't need to hear it go into the swirling vortex of despair and the people who do need to hear it don't hear it at all. Can we we hit the middle ground here? And those people who are constantly going and feeling, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm just a, a, a pile of junk... Would you hear that Lord loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and values you? And this isn't about you feeling worse about yourself, but at the same time, if you're on the other end of your spectrum and you think you're God's gift to God, it's time to start looking inwardly with a little bit of a bigger microscope and a little bit more uh, um, heavier uh, focus rate and looking in on some of those inside things of your lives. You know, we can be eternally, externally successful, but internally falling apart. This is what was happening in the nation of Israel. They were successful on the outward, but yet inwardly they were, they were compromising and they were a mess. You see, the rich were becoming richer and the poor were becoming poorer. Ancient Israelite land rights and that were being set aside and the, the things that, that the law had called them to do. For example, they, um, their, their plowing and their harvest pra- practices were such that, that they were to, to harvest the middle of the field, but they were to leave the edges for those less fortunate and those who would come along and be able to glean and, and be able to, to benefit from the bounty of the land. And yet even that, they were... They were forsaking that and saying, you know what, what's mine is mine and what's, what, what's mine is not yours. They're socially underprivileged were being exploited. Rights were being violated through intimidation of witnesses and bribery of judges. Israel no longer looked like a nation belonging to God, even though on the outside they looked like everything was fine and they were appearing godly. You see, the sacrifices weren't a problem. 
Their offerings were to brother their time. They were doing the religious deeds. They were doing the religious acts. They were still offering their sacrifices to the Lord. They were still serving. They were still going through the motions. And yet there was something drastically wrong. None of it was pleasing to God. Take a look at chapter 5 and verse 21. God responds and, and He says, you know what? There's stuff here that's going on that, that I hate. And you say, hate's a, a strong word. Well, that's what, it, what gets used here. God hates this stuff. Look at this. This is God's word through Amos to His people in Israel. He says, I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. He starts getting a little deeper here. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain, grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And we get thinking, isn't it? Logically speaking, we go, okay, well, well, we come into a church, a great looking church, and we got, we got wonderful greeters, and we got great food between services, and we got awesome worship music, and we give our tithes and our offerings, we take communion, and you know what the Lord is saying? As if He were saying to Israel back then, He's saying, you know what, all of it is junk, it's garbage if your heart's not in it. It doesn't matter how much you write the check for. It doesn't matter how many kids' classes you serve in or teach in. It doesn't matter how many bulletins you hand out at the front door or how many times a month you serve communion. It doesn't even matter how many times you take communion. It's garbage. It's junk. It's stuff God hates unless something's going on here. It doesn't matter if we do hymns or chorus. It doesn't matter if we're traditional or contemporary. It doesn't matter if we're blended or we have ten songs or three songs or two songs and it's got a, a funky beat or not. Whether we got organ or piano or, or you name it, guitars and drums, or whether we go acapoco. It doesn't matter unless the heart, right? You know what God is saying? He's saying it's, it stinks. If you're missing it. And it's up to you to examine your heart and check your heart. Not of this, this condemnation. Remember, condemnation is not conviction. Conviction is not condemnation. Scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you know what? It doesn't mean we can't be convicted of some of the things that, that are, are going sideways, right? Pastor's getting personal this morning. You know, just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean you're pleasing God or you're putting a smile on His face. Just because you're acting Christian doesn't mean you're pleasing Christ. Just because you look righteous, just because you're experiencing goodness and favor, just because you do the religious things in church and worship and giving and serving doesn't mean the Lord is pleased. Does that mean we walk around fearful of doing because we don't want to disappoint God? No. But it does mean that we look around introspectively. We have people in our lives. Oh, I tell you, we got to be more introspective. We got to allow more people to speak truth into our lives. I don't know. There's just a huge spirit of offense, people. Well, this person said this to me. This person said this to me. That person can just go take a hike. That person didn't have, you know. Now, I understand a lot of people are saying a lot of encouraging things that are meant to be cutting. 
But at the same time, if, if people are in Christ and they have a relationship with Christ and you're in a relationship with them, we have this right relationship with God and this right relationship with one another. And when that is healthy, we should be able to speak the truth in love and we should be able to hear what somebody is saying and not take offense. You know, a number of years ago, man, staff know and elders know, man, I had, I had probably one of the, the worst wonderful days in my life. Wonderfully awful, I say. And there was, there was some confrontation. Darren was in the crosshairs. And I tell you, you know, in my flesh and in my humanity and that, I, I simply wanted to say, you know what, you guys take a hike. I'm out of here. But in that moment, just asking the Lord, would you speak? Would you just interpret this for me? The Lord gave me three things. One was this, one was be quick to repent. Be quick to repent. One was hearing the word of the Lord. The last one I think was equally important and that was bury the spirit of offense. Be quick to repent. Hear sincerely what God was saying. And bury the spirit of offense. You know, I think for Israel, it would have been real easy for them to go, you know what, Amos, take a hike. You know what, Amos, just take, you know, you're from the south. Us Yankees up here in Israel, you know. I'm just... <laughs> I wonder if he had that southern drawl, I don't know. It would have been real easy for them to say, take a hike. But even hearing how Amos was wrestling with this, he got visions from God. And if you go and, and read on in, in the later chapters, he gets these visions, ones of, of locusts, this plague of locusts. And he prays that the Lord would, would be restrained in his, in his wrath. And God, it says that God relents and God turns away from his wrath. He's given this vision of fire coming down and consuming and once again, Amos prays and, and God relents. He's given this vision of a plumb line or a level and shown that Israel isn't, isn't lining up with what God's requirements are. He goes on and sees a, a vision of, of this basket of fruit that's ripe for the picking and that this wrath will come on Israel. And it's not a good message. It's not a good time for Israel. And yet, there's a message of hope. And I love this all throughout the Old Testament. And, and as Christ comes onto the scene in, in, uh, in the New Testament, there's this glimmer of hope. And the glimmer of hope here is in the words that Amos says to his people in Israel. And it's in Amos chapter 5, verse 4. And he simply says this, the whole book can be summed up in this one section of this one verse. Come back to me and live. Israel, come back to me. Turn. It's basically the word for, the, for repent. Israel, would you repent? Would you turn from your wickedness? Would you turn from the way that you're going? Would you, would you get rid of these, uh, these idols that you're worshiping and get back to worshiping the one true God? 
Will you turn back to me because I have good things in store for you. I want to bless you. I want to pour out my spirit on you. I want to fill you with joy. I want to, to give you peace and safety and security and comfort. I want you to be my people and I want to be your God. But you can't do it walking this way on your own. Will you hear me? Will you turn and will you come back to me? Come back to me and live. Another version says seek me. And live. And we know that those who seek him will find him. Those who knock, the door will be answered. Those who ask will be given. And that's our heart. That's our cry that we would know his true love for us. That the exposure of sin in our lives wouldn't be one of condemnation, but it would be one of love and conviction. The fact that he wants better for our lives. He has so much more for us and he wants us to live a fulfilling and joyful and God-honoring life. Dan and I recently, it kind of the story backs up even further. I, was, uh, I took a recent trip up to Canada and on my plane trip I loaded my phone up with a couple of movies and um, I love these stories about Everest and the Himalayas and mountain climbing and this and I, I watched one TV show that, or uh, uh, episode of this that was a, a climbing of K2 one of the high, high peaks in the Himalayas another one was on Everest and I've read the books and I've watched the movies and this well uh, over this last weekend Dan and I have been watching uh, um, the, the um, Amazon Prime uh, Everest series and just eating it up. We just can't get enough. And um, there's this one uh, story um, that happened back in 2006. There were two climbers. Some of the team had already gone to the summit. There were two climbers who were slower. And um, uh, when they get up to that level, they have to use bottled oxygen. They only have so much time to get to the summit and get back down, get back to where they don't need oxygen anymore. And, and the expedition leader is down at a lower camp and he's looking through the binoculars, and he's, he's watching them, and he's also radioing them, and he's understanding, and he's figuring out that these two climbers cannot make it to the summit and back down and still live. They, if they go to the summit, they will die. He's done the figuring. He's checked it out, and they are 300 feet from the top. 300 feet from the top. It's like from here to there. It's from, you can see it. You could throw a football that far down here at sea, you know, at sea level or lower places. And they're saying, no, we can go. And, and, and their expedition leader is saying, no, it will take you 45 minutes to an hour to get that far. And every step you go further is one step further away from you living. And he's begging them, and he spends half an hour begging and pleading with them to turn around. They finally do, and they make it down. But the arguing that went on, and, the, and you could just hear this expedition, please, 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 turn around, turn around, turn around, and live. And truly, folks, this is what God is saying to each one of us. It might look enticing. It might look like success. It might look like something that brings joy and fulfillment, but it's something that's going to destroy you and kill you. Would you turn around now and live? Come back to me. That's the heart of God for each and every one of us. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, right now,
I pray you'd reveal your heart of love for each one of us. It'd be easy for us to say, how could a God of love extend wrath and judgment? How could a, a loving God have these feelings toward people he loved? And yet, your heart of love is so, so huge. Lord, the desperation, you want us to turn back so, so desperately, so, so dearly, because you know that, that destruction and ruin is what we are heading toward. Lord, your word says, while we were dead in our transgressions and sin, Christ died for us. You provided a way for salvation, for redemption, for us to repent Receive your grace and forgiveness and enter into that wonderful, wonderful relationship with you. Lord, I believe wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly that you have a plan and a purpose for each and every person in this room right now. And it's so easy for us to get thinking if we just do the right things, if we just put on the religious facade, if we just write the check and, and uh, teach the class and do the right thing and take communion and sing the songs that we're somehow maintaining what is required and what will put a smile on your face. But Lord, that's not what you want. Lord, to King Saul, you said, you don't, you don't delight in, in sacrifices. So the sacrifice that you approve, the sacrifice that you desire is a broken and contrite heart. That's what you want. You don't want the, the fat of rams or the offerings that your people were offering up to you. You want our hearts to be broken before you. So Lord, I pray that right now you'd simply be speaking the power of your Holy Spirit to each person here. And folks, I, I encourage you just to open up your heart and just say, Lord, would you, would you search me? Search my heart, just like the psalmist said in Psalm 139. Search me, know my heart, Lord. See if there's any anxious ways in me. I pray, you just pray that prayer right now. Just hear what he has to say. And then know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might pray something like this. It says, Lord, I want to turn from that right now. From the anger, the bitterness, the animosity, the jealousy. The gods that I'm worshiping that are not you. The things that I'm chasing after that aren't pleasing to you. I want to turn from those things right now, Lord. I want to cling to you. I want to turn and I want to live. And know this, the Lord hears the cries of your heart. The Lord knows where your heart's at. Just reach out to him right now. Say, Lord, come in, speak to me. I want to turn to you. I want to come to you and I want to live. I want to seek after you. And I don't know exactly how that looks. I'm, truth be told, I haven't been very good at it. But Lord, you know my heart and I pray you'd help me. Help me. 
drawing near Holy Spirit right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.